Colorado State Representative Gordon Klingenschmidt. Good name, right? Um, he is from the 12th District, which incorporates a lot of Colorado Springs. Uh, he is a retired Navy chaplain. He was a graduate of the Air Force Academy. Um, and he, in April uh, 2009, made headlines for praying an imprecatory prayer against Mikey Weinstein. What is an imprecatory prayer? It sounds painful. Uh, imprecatory just means to curse, to uh, wish ill towards somebody. And he based his prayer off of Psalm 109. And Psalm 109 says, uh, may his days be few. May God remember his sins. And he was actually taken to court by Mikey Weinstein uh, because Mikey saw this. And Mikey uh, Weinstein, guess what? He's Jewish. Uh, he's an agnostic. Uh, he saw this as equivalent to a, a fatwa, uh, a calling for his destruction. And in fact, uh, many people, many folks who heard uh, Gordon Kling, Klingenschmidt's prayer harassed the Weinstein family. They painted swastikas on his home. Uh, they shot out the windows. They issued death threats. And it was an example that if God doesn't answer your imprecatory prayer, God's friends will, or at least people who think they're God's friend. This went to court, and the Texas judge ruled in favor of Gordon, saying that he had not violated Weinstein's uh, uh, rights. So, good news, you can pray imprecatory prayers against people. But should we? Now, should we pray imprecatory prayers? Should we pray prayer curses towards people? Uh, should we pray when we're angry? It's interesting, if you're like me, you probably have a few folks in your life that don't think as highly of you as they ought. Um, <laughs> You probably have a handful of people who you could say are um, frenemies, you know, that new term for it. And maybe you'd even go a step farther and say, no, these folks are enemies. Uh, maybe, and this is a small town, so we'll break into small groups and share in a moment who these people are. Um, <laughs> Actually, we don't need to, right? Because many of us can probably figure out who your enemies and your frenemies are because it is a small town. Just this past week, I found out I must have a frenemy or somebody who didn't listen well uh, because my sermon about uh, praying for the city and praying specifically for the schools got back to the principal at Ray High School and his comment was, now I even have preachers preaching against me. And apparently, it was reported to him that I had called him Satan and said a bunch of mean things. What? And I didn't say any of those. Um, one of the teachers uh, tried to straighten him out on uh, what happened there. And so I must have a friend of me who decided to throw me under the bus in some way. And so I've been praying imprecatory prayers this past week. <laughs> and I've been wrestling with, is that Okay. And Jesus told us, pray for your enemies. He said, bless those who curse you 
and pray for those who persecute you. But have you noticed that he didn't tell you what to pray? He said, bless them. But most of the time in scripture, blessing is a action. It's a, it's a behavior. It's how, we, it's how we act. And he didn't really instruct us on how to pray for our enemies. So I've always wondered, how should we pray for our enemies? Fortunately, God left us his book. He uh, had all these stories and all these people and all these incidents and all these prayers that he had written down. He said, these are so good, print it in the Bible. And we're going to jump around because I learned this from Mike on how to preach while jumping around throughout the Bible. Um, and partly why I'm going to do this is because I'm, I'm preaching more of a principle rather than a text, okay? Now, we're going to go to a text, and we're going to try to base it a little bit out of that text. We're going to base it out of an incident that happened to the Apostle Paul, because Paul had enemies, and he wouldn't even call them frenemies. These were full-on enemies that the Apostle Paul had, and they had it bad for him. They really wanted to do him harm. In fact, in the ancient world, you could. You could do him harm. In fact, um, in a moment, we'll see some of the harm that they did to him. But in uh, Acts chapter 19, we want to camp out a little bit on an experience that Paul had. Now, Paul, many of us have this picture of the Apostle Paul. Maybe you don't have a picture of the Apostle Paul at all, but uh, if you grew up in church world, many of us have this picture of the Apostle Paul going around, sailing ships, going around all the ancient world. But one of the things he did a lot was spend time in prison. One of the things he did a lot was cause riots in towns that he went. And so in that regard, I feel pretty good about my sermon a few weeks ago that caused a riot and a ruckus in town. So that's kind of interesting. A little different scenario for Paul. In this passage, he causes a riot in Ephesus. And Ephesus is an ancient port city. It's a beautiful place. In fact, cruise ships go there all the time because people want to go see the ancient ruins of Ephesus. They want to see the temple to Artemis of the Ephesians. They want to walk the streets and they want to see the uh, amphitheater, which was sort of like Red Rocks, but it seated 25,000 people, not just two to 3,000 people. Uh, They want to go see these structures, these ruins that still exist to this day. And on top of that, it's on the Mediterranean. It's gorgeous. It's warm. It's wonderful. It's a great place to visit. And Paul went there with the message of Jesus Christ being risen from the dead, and he sought to establish some churches there. And Acts 19 tells us about his experience in Ephesus. And he was very successful. People got it. Folks converted to following Jesus Christ, and so much so that um, one of the business owners was worried about business. Listen, Tax 19, beginning in verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, and that's what they used to call uh, Christianity, the way, uh, the way to follow Christ. A silversmith named Demetrius who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the um, skilled workers there. He called them together, 
along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He's worried because it's been so successful, the conversion rate to Christianity. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. (laughs) That's my livelihood. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began, began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristocrat A, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed together into the theater, this theater that seated 25,000 people. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. That's some of you, that's your verse at church. (laughs) It's in the Bible. The Jews in the crowd, you're here for a good nap. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul had enemies. Paul had enemies whose livelihood was at stake because of the message he was proclaiming, whose way of life was threatened. Does that ever happen in real life? Colorado water engineer threatened the livelihood of anybody ever in Ray? Kansas-Nebraska lawsuit threatened the livelihoods of anyone in Ray? Uh, This happens. We have enemies. We have situations that not just, you know, are difficult to navigate because we get sideways with somebody, but because they threaten our very livelihood. They threaten the very way we are making our way through the world. And Paul had enemies. He threatened them and they threatened him back. And I wonder... How did Paul pray for these folks? How did Paul handle this? What did he do? Now, one person named in this text who you probably didn't see as his enemy is this man, Alexander. And he shows up a couple other times. Now, possibly he shows up a couple of times. We're we're not completely certain, but I think it's a good guess that he shows up a couple other times in Scripture. Before we look at Alexander, though, one of the things I want you to see is how threatened Paul was. In 1st or 2nd Corinthians, is it, I think it's 2nd Corinthians, uh, Paul writes these words. Is that the next slide, 2nd Corinthians, Sam? Could you put, there we go. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes, minus one. Five times he received 39 lashes from a whip. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. And Paul is telling us this because he wants a movie deal. (laughs) But no, five times he was beaten within an inch of his life with a whip. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was nearly stoned to death. You have that kind of enemy? Ones that, I mean, it's one thing to threaten physical harm. It's another to do physical harm. And how do you pick yourself up after the last rock flies and smacks you in the face? And miraculously, God spares your life. And you're crushed and you're bloodied. How do you move forward with the emotions you must be feeling? I mean, we've got to remember that Paul's not a robot here. We need to remember that he's just not holier than all of us to the point that these things don't bother him. We need to remember that he's flesh and blood, that these things, he didn't have MRIs available to figure out why does my knee hurt now after the last stoning I experienced? How come this arm is bent because of the rod beating I took? I've got this horrible infection on my back. He had no doctors, no hospitals, nothing he could go to to help him in these situations. He had God. If somebody were to beat you within an inch of your life, if somebody were to beat you with a rod, if somebody were to pelt you with stones, how would you respond? What would you do? Now, before we get going on that, we don't know how Paul responded. Doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us that, you know, he took up arms to defend himself. And it doesn't tell us that he didn't do that. It tells us nothing about what he did. But we can jump around in the scriptures a bit and see options for him. And we'll actually see with this Alexander guy some of the stuff that he did with Alexander. But I want you to, if you haven't already, bring to mind your mortal enemy Place them right there, dab front in in front of you in your mind. And we're going to wrestle with that person today. We're going to wrestle with how we should respond to that person today. We're going to learn how to pray angry today. Now, one of the things we need to do as we jump around is look at the Psalms. The Psalms are this amazing book of prayers and of worship and of songs that were written by King David and all, and Moses wrote one, and all these different psalmists wrote these things. And one of the things that's fascinating about the Psalms is that it, they, these are God-inspired prayers by people who are praying to God. You got that? So these were prayers that somebody prayed to God that God said, print it, that's good Bible, that's a good way to talk to me. 
And for centuries, the Hebrews have seen the Psalms as the gymnasium of prayer, the place to go to work out, to figure it out, to get her done, to learn how to pray, to train yourself in prayer. And I have done a lot of reading on what to do with imprecatory psalms, because we're going to read several imprecatory psalms in a moment. And did you know that a lot of Christians have wrestled with, can we pray these? These sound really bad. In fact, some Christians would say, these you can't pray. These are sin. This records how they felt as humans, but this does not record how God wants to be addressed. And let me say from the very beginning, I disagree with that. I don't think these are sinful prayers. I think these are therapeutic, helpful prayers for us. And one of the things I want you to do is, now we're going to go to the Old Testament. Some of you are going to be thinking, oh, well, they could pray those things because that was before Jesus. But then you're starting to say, the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. And that creates other problems. Now, if you say that, you are in a long line of heretics who have said that for a long, long time. Marcion was one of the earliest, and he disliked the God of the Old Testament so much that he rejected it and didn't want to read it and wanted to kick it out of the Bible. In fact, he did. He made his own Bible. And you can choose to do that. But I want to remind you that what Paul had available to him, what Jesus had available to him as the scriptures was the Old Testament. Because the New Testament is in the process of being lived out and written. And let me also suggest to you that Paul, being trained as a Pharisee, had memorized the entire Old Testament. And that it was always in his mind. This was his worldview. This was his orientation to life. This is how he got through things. So let me suggest to you that when he was beaten within an inch of his life, when he was beaten by rods, when people threw rocks at him, left him to die, these were prayers that were on his lips. Let me also further suggest to you that we know this to be the case with the person Jesus, that these prayers were on his lips lips. In fact, that's one way to interpret the imprecatory Psalms. I disagree with this interpretation, but some see them as messianic, that the only person that legitimately can pray these is Jesus. Now, I think it's right he can legitimately pray them, but I don't think it's right he's the only one who can legitimately pray them. Now, before, uh, let's just jump in because you're going to be like, I need a shower. I need a bath after this sermon because these are ugly words. But remember, these are words spoken to God, and God said, print it, that's good Bible. Psalm 7, verse 6 says this, Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice. Uh, Psalm 35, 26 says this, May all who gloat over my distress be put to shame and confusion. May all who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and disgrace. Some of you are like, that's a good prayer. Um, Psalm 69, 22 through 28. May the table set before them, my enemies, become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. 
May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those who wound and you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. It gets uglier. Psalm 109. Appoint someone evil to appoint my enemy. (laughs) That's a good one, right? (laughs) Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. By the way, there's a Republican that jokingly sent this to other Republicans (laughs) saying this is the biblical prayer that they can pray for their Democratic colleagues. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. Ouch, praying against mom. Notice why I didn't preach this on Mother's Day? (laughs) May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. This is the ugly part of the Bible. This is the R-rated part of the Bible. By the way, lots of it is R-rated. At least PG-13. If somebody were to beat you within an inch of your life, to beat you three different occasions with rods, to try to stone you to death and leave you for dead, how would you pray for those people? Okay. Not how would you pray. How would you want to pray for those people? I mean, let's be real here. This is church. People tell me all the time, well, I'm not supposed to lie in church. We do it all the time. And not just here. God's everywhere, by the way. Just FYI, he's omnipresent. He's not just here. In fact, some argue this is one of the few places he's regularly not. God's everywhere. Not only that, he knows your heart. Not only that, in the scriptures... He says, the human heart is deceitful above all things. Yours and I's hearts deceive us all the time. And we deceive ourselves all the time. And we tell ourselves, I'm really not that upset about this because I'm a Christian. And I can't tell you how many times people tell me they use Christian like it's a verb. They regularly come up and say, well, that's not a very Christian response. Well, it wasn't very Christian of me. Last I checked, Christian's not a verb. It's a noun. And when we say that, when people say that to me, 
What are they saying? They're saying what I wanted to do, what I wanted to think, or what I did do, or what I did think, did not line up with what I claimed to be or claimed to do. Let me suggest to you that prayer is not to be a place of hypocrisy. Prayer is not to be a place that we try to clean up our motives, our thoughts, our language for God's sake. He already knows. He sees that, you know, they describe the Grinch's heart in the little TV show. They get the x-ray out and they show his heart. God's got that machine. And he sees it all. He sees our hearts. He sees what goes on in there. And he knew exactly how Paul felt the moment the first lash hit his back. He knew whether Paul said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Or, oh my gosh, if I had a chance... How would you pray? And then the second time of those five beatings, oh no, not again. The third time, this is never going to happen again. The fourth time, why do I keep talking for Jesus? This is really hurting now. And the fifth time, oh well, they'll eventually kill me. Then they moved to rods because the whip was, he was used to it, his calloused back. wouldn't make an impression anymore. It was like raw, rough leather hide. You just couldn't get through it anymore, right? Now let's use sticks on this guy. Let's use rods. How would you want to pray? Now, I know some of you are taking steps to prepare for when bad things happen in our country. And we're getting prepared to get all rowdy here. So we've got our guns. And we've got our stores. Our cache of items. And that tells us something about us, doesn't it? That if somebody endangers me and mine, I want to do something about it. I want to be prepared to defend myself. I want to be ready to not let them take this from me, my stuff, my life. And if we're doing that in our behavior, and by the way, whether you do that consciously or not, all of us are doing that because we all like to stay alive. And we're all taking steps to keep what is ours safe. Our things and our life and our friends and our family And if those things get threatened, most of us would take action to defend. Now, whether that is something we should or shouldn't do is not the point of this sermon. What I want to raise in your mind, because some of you are sitting there going, I would never pray a prayer like that. That's just bad. That's sin. That's not in the Bible. What I want you to tap into with that friend that frenemy 
that enemy sitting across from you in your mind, I want you to tap into those feelings and I want you to be extremely honest with yourself and with God right now. What do you want to pray? Lord, we just ask that you would save their soul and I'd get to spend eternity with them forever. Lord, I just ask that they would have a seat right next to me at the wedding feast of the Lamb when you don't even want to have them have a seat next to you at next wedding that you attend. What do you want to pray? Don't clean it up. God knows. He sees it. You can't fool him. We call him father, but he's not a dad who can have the wool pulled over his eyes. How do you want to pray? What do you want to say? What is in there? Let me suggest to you that prayer is the means by which we relinquish our desire for a pound of flesh. Prayer is the means by which we hand our enemies over to God. And we do not seek vengeance. Prayer is the place where we wrestle with God, not with our enemy. Prayer is this place that we go to and we pour out our soul. Remember Hannah last week? We go to God and we pour out our whole soul, the good and the bad, the evil, the dark. Because Paul, the apostle, let's go back to him. How did he handle the riot in Ephesus? How did he handle enemies? Well, in Romans 12, verse 9, I think that's the next, I hope that's the next slide. If it's not, would you jump there? Twelve nineteen. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Believe room for God's wrath. Circle, highlight, underline. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, Paul knows that in his heart, he would like to be the guy with the whip. He knows in his heart he'd like to be the guy with the rod. He knows in his heart he'd like to be the guy with the stone. Trouble is, he also understands that that is sin. He also understands to to pick up the rock and throw it is to take matters into his own hands. And he understands that to be sin. And he understands his Hebrew Bible. Did you see how that's in quote? He's quoting the Old Testament. He is saying, it is God's place to avenge, not mine. He's going to leave room for God's wrath. And then he goes on. Uh, We find out what happened with this Alexander fellow, I believe, in the next verses we read. The pastoral epistles, they were written to Timothy. Actually, would you go to First Timothy, uh, the pastoral epistles were written to Timothy, his co-worker, who he left in Ephesus after this riot. How'd you like to be that guy? <laughs> really? Can't I go on with you? It's gotten a little crazy down here. They're wanting to kill somebody. 
Yeah, but look at all the new followers in Jesus. They need leadership. They need help. They need good teaching. Because if it's gotten this bloody and this crazy right now, somebody has got to have the guts to stay here. Timothy was like a Marine. He stays in Ephesus. And Paul writes, and he says this, holding on to faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. How did he do that? How did he hand them over? Yo, Satan, got some guys I want you to meet. How, how do you do that handover? How does that work? Let me just suggest to you it happens in prayer. Let me suggest to you that it was in prayer during Paul's quiet time that morning as he was reading Psalm 109. And he's like, I got some guys in mind for this one. This may or may not be the same Alexander. We're not 100% sure, but let me just build a case for the fact that it probably is. Timothy's in Ephesus. Alexander was pushed forward by the Jews. Jews had faith. Paul says this one's shipwrecked. Maybe this Jew, because in the next chapter or the next passage from 2 Timothy 4, we learn that he's a coppersmith. And maybe he was making good money from making idols for the Greeks to bow down to. And that would lead to shipwreck of faith. And here he says, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Now let me just be the first to say, I am so thankful that God saw Paul write that down and said, print it, that's good Bible. Because it tells me that God is big enough to handle my anger. God is big enough to handle my disappointments, my discouragement. God is big enough to handle those things, and one day he's going to put things to right. One day. And it is not my job, it is not my responsibility, it is not my place to judge them and to seek vengeance. But I can bring my frenemies to God in prayer. Let me encourage you to do this. We live in a town that is currently being torn apart because of fighting and arguing and assumptions. And what if instead of assuming things about people and thinking we know best and figuring out that if we do this and they'll do that and positioning and all these things, what if we wrestled with these people in prayer? What if we wrestled with God in prayer? And what if we took those things and instead of figuring out how I'm going to get them and how I'm going to get back and this is never going to happen again to me, what if we figured out because we have spent time in prayer with God, with our frenemy, and now we can bless them? How are you going to bless somebody 
who's beaten you with a rod? How are you going to bless somebody who's thrown a rock at you? How are you going to bless somebody who has beaten you with a whip? How do you do that? Paul knew his Bible. He knew that the expectation of him was to love his enemies, not from what Jesus said. Jesus was just repeating what Leviticus told him. Let me suggest to you that the only way to deal with your enemies properly is to leave room for God to deal with them. And the way we do that is in prayer. One last quote. This is not from a passage of Scripture, but this is the point of this. Let God handle your enemies. The way you do that is in prayer. You can leave room for God's wrath because it is His prerogative to avenge. Sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer. Is your view of prayer big enough to handle all of you? Every bit of you? The good? The bad and that famous Western, the ugly. Let us pray. Father, I know my own heart and I know that it is ugly. And I know there are things in this life and people in this life that I have ill intentions and will towards. And I know there are people who I struggle to not hate. And Lord, sometimes we don't like to be honest with ourselves in this regard. We do not like to be honest with you in this regard. And so I pray that you would expand our view of prayer and we would have a biblical view of prayer that maybe we would go home and we would read Psalm 109 several times this week. And we would see that the Holy Spirit said, print it, that's good Bible. You gave us a gymnasium to work these things out so that we wouldn't have to go out on the field of life and take out our vengeance. So Lord, I pray that we would enter the gym that we would work out and wrestle with you before we hit the field. And when we hit the field, we could bless our enemies. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you enter into this type of peace. For all imprecatory prayers are ultimately about peace. Amen.